Welcome to the Compounding Center Connections, where we talk about different health conditions with our partnered practitioners. I'm your host, Jay Gill, a compounding pharmacist from the Compounding Center in Leesburg, Virginia. At the Compounding Center, we collaborate with practitioners, create custom medications to help our patients get better. In this, in this episode, our guest is Dr. Leonard Weinstock, a board-certified gastroenterologist, and your practice is in St. Louis, Missouri. Right. Dr. Weinstock is going to talk to you about MCAS, also called mast cell activation syndrome. So welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Weinstock. Could you please introduce yourself and your practice to the listeners? Okay, thank you so much, Jay. Um, I have been in practice for a long time. Um, I started in 1987, joined a very busy physician who said, you know, you should keep your mind open, have an internal medicine practice as well as GI in part so you could refer patients to other specialists and get known, um, but it also keeps you well-rounded. And I always liked internal medicine. I thought these were the sleuths of medicine. These were the detectives. And I loved gastroenterology because it was like being a detective. Plus you got to see things and do things with endoscopy that rounded it out almost to a surgical field. Um, but when I got out, uh, Jay, you know, I realized I didn't know the first thing about most syndromes that they're talking about. I didn't remember being taught much about irritable bowel syndrome or fibromyalgia syndrome or interstitial cystitis syndrome. You know, I don't know if I was sleeping in those classes or they just never approached it. And so I saw all these things in internal medicine and restless leg syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, that I was wondering, well, if we're so smart, why are we seeing everything with syndrome attached to it? Well, uh, Dr. Weinstock, um, before we begin, I really want to truly appreciate you to the listeners. Uh, Dr. Weinstock is joining us for this episode on a Sunday at four o'clock on his vacation. So I truly appreciate it. And uh, you have an expert or extensive knowledge with low-dose naltrexone and autoimmune conditions. And I've been to many of your lectures, and this is the very first time we're kind of meeting virtually, uh, first time in person kind of. So thank you very much. Um, My pleasure. Before we begin, a, a disclaimer that the information discussed today is strictly for informational purposes only, not for diagnosis or treatment. And so let's get started. So um, usually I'm fairly knowledgeable about a condition, uh, but in this particular case, I have to be honest, I don't know too much about MCAS. So uh, I'm looking forward to learning from you today in this episode. Could you set the stage for us? What do you on a daily basis, could you describe in a daily basis, a typical patient that you see and you suspect MCAS? Absolutely. Well, what I'd like to say is the very first patient who I diagnosed the condition was not somebody I diagnosed. It was diagnosed by somebody else. She called me up um, in 2016 for a consultation. She lived in Alaska. She was um, 
led through my door, uh, so to speak, uh, virtually by Linda Ellsgood, who runs the LDN Research Trust.org. And um, so Jill, um, I can use her name in part because she was the propositus of a case report, the first case report and paper that I wrote about MCAS. And she presented uh, with abdominal pain, uh, bloating, diarrhea, foggy, pot symptoms, um, severe uh, nausea, fainting, uh, all these symptoms that we went back to ultimately and said, we've got to write this up because she was offered new treatment that had not been given before. And so that was my first publication, namely a case of MCAS and POTS alleviated by intravenous immune globulin, treatment of uh, inflammation by low-dose naltrexone, and treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth by rifaximin. And so um, not only did she make me aware of what POTS and MCAS was, because I wasn't taught those in med school, um, but I basically, with her initiative, helped cure her of her symptoms. And she went from 42 symptoms of nine to 10 out of 10 severity with complete disability to a completely functioning mathematician, statistician, dietitian, and Jill is the most amazing person. She used to pass out when she went into uh, big box stores. She said those were her kryptonites um, that weakened her and she'd pass out. Fluorescent lights, uh, change in atmosphere, things that you'd never think would be reasonable for a patient to come up with. How could they make that up? But the key thing is, whether it was somebody like Jill with 42 symptoms or somebody who had refractory nausea and was labeled with cyclic vomiting or refractory irritable bowel syndrome who happened to have hives, itching, rash, ringing of the ears, restless leg syndrome, uh, pelvic floor pain. Um, these are the things that make MCAS patients, along with two other syndromes, very common, namely the evil triad of MCAS, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and EDS, Ehlers-Danros syndrome. So, Dr. Weinstein, uh, can we go back to the beginning and kind of... Um uh talk uh could you talk to us about what is mast cell activation syndrome and what causes it uh in, you know in kind of general terms what what is it okay it's an unregulated mast cell that has undergone mutation of the controller gene so it's basically like a drunk sailor it acts like it wants to it spits out chemicals and which cause inflammation the mast cell is the most important uh, immune cell in the body. It mainly lives in the bone marrow, um, but what it wakes up, if you will, when there's been inflammation, infection, burn, injury, infection, uh, leading to activation of mast cells and drawing other mast cells and other types of 
immune cells to the site of injury. And then um, normal mast cells will say, okay, you've done your job, time to quit. The angry, unregulated mast cell because of its gene mutation says, okay, join the party. We're gonna keep on causing inflammation and you guys can do whatever you want. So, so basically um, we have like one set of your normal mast cells be active and they activate other cells, in particular other mast cells. So it's a cascading effect. So what do you get? You've got a wide range of systemic symptoms caused by activation of the um, mast cell line. So um, the mast cells are released due to inflammation um, or I'm trying to figure out what comes first. Is it the, is it the, uh, the autoimmune that causes an amped up uh, immune system to release it or, or does the mast cell go uh, are released and they lead to inflammation? Like if you could, like what comes first? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, let's start at the very beginning. There's a genetic predisposition to develop the disease. So, you know, a child who has colic, uh, headaches, constipation, maybe food allergies, mm. uh, but they can also have other disorders, nausea, uh, uh, rashes, hives. These people, little people, have a mother, most often, who has undiagnosed symptoms and syndromes. So she may or may not have full-blown MCAS. But then uh, she gives birth to a child who then develops symptoms because of mutation of one of the um, cells in their body, namely one of the lines of uh, mast cells. And that is in part triggered by our environment, so-called epigenetic phenomenon. So if you're exposed to radon or um, maybe pollution or maybe uh, PFAs in the uh, water we drink, um, it will mutate. Uh, and then once you get mutation, it stays. And these mast cells then pop out of the bone marrow, go to various sites, the nose, the gut, the mouth, the skin, the vagina, uh, the cervix, all areas of body, especially environmental surfaces, and they live for a long time. They can live months to years at these sites creating havoc. So it's spitting out from the bone marrow, disseminating in the uh, systemic area, but they're not um, becoming so badly uh, in terms of so badly uh, generated that you'd call it a cancer, that would be mastocytosis, a very rare cause of mast cell disturbance. But 17% of the Americans have mast cell activation syndrome. Okay. Um, so environment, uh, environmental toxins are a trigger. Are there other triggers for MCAS? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, you got to have the disease to get the triggers to be 
in action. So in other words, yeah. you got to have the mutated kit gene it's called, uh, which is the controller gene. Okay. So once you're set up with some of your mast cells like that, you've got the disorder. But of course, if you have, let's say, recurrent ear infections and strep infections as a child, A, that can activate things, and B, it might be responsible for mutations. Or you get, as a teenager, mono, and then viral infections will mutate or per, per, uh, always lead to um, activation of the mast cells and, and get you in going into a stepwise worsening situation, just like we see in our mast cell patients who get COVID. And then that long COVID exacerbates mast cell activation leading towards this condition. And I, I published a paper showing that once uh, normal people actually get COVID, they act like MCAS patients, but they're truly not MCAS patients, but they act just like it. So long COVID is a mast cell activation type condition. Okay. So you talked about genetic mutation. Uh, uh, two questions. Is there a genetic test and is there any kind of a, um, uh, like a diagnosis questionnaire that somebody at home could potentially kind of see, hey, could, could I possibly have this? Great questions. Um, and we didn't collaborate on this question, but perfect question. Okay, number one, it was it was described in 2006 by Dr. Uh, Gerhold um, Molderings. And Dr. Molderings took large quantities of blood out of people with these gastrointestinal-based and systemic symptoms because he thought something was going along, could something be diagnosed by genetic testing? And he found um, genetic markers and he subsequently found other mutations. But these things are only found in a research lab, hmm. taking out a lot of blood from patients, spinning it down to look for genetic changes. Um, and they differ between people. And uh, people who are, you know, severely affected will have more than one gene mutation. With respect to, hey, do I have MCAS? I have all these weird symptoms. I've seen so many doctors and nobody knows what, and they think I'm crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, there's a good questionnaire. So Dr. Moldering's, and then uh, later I helped uh, translate from Germany to the latest brand of the um or latest edition of the mass um, mass cell mediator release syndrome um, test. And I've got that on my website, gidoctor.net, www.gidoctor.net. So that questionnaire is there. And if you have a certain amount of points, then it makes you suspicious that somebody's got a mass cell type problem. You have to do tests to really know do they have it or not, which brings up interesting discussion between two groups of physicians, those who wanted to find it one way and one who wanted to find it another. Hmm. So um, let's see. So walk us through um, uh, 
patients such as Jill or somebody that who's done the questionnaire and you suspect uh, MCAS, uh, what are some treatment options that you employ? Well, first of all, I generally like to have a diagnosis attempt before I treat. Okay. But so I'll just lay out my diagnostic plan, okay? My diagnostic test is looking at seven readily available blood and urine tests. They have to be handled the right way because if they're these uh, chemicals that are spit out by mast cells are heat labile. So if you spin their plasma in a regular centrifuge, uh, then it breaks down and your levels are falsely negative. So um, that's number one. I'd like to get a positive marker and in about 70% of people, I'll have one or two, average of 1.4 positive markers um, validating the questionnaire points to come up to a net sum saying this is highly likely to be MCAS. And then in terms of the uh, criteria to diagnose the problem, if they have symptoms in five or more systems, body systems, heart, abdomen, eyes, ears, nose, throat, neurological, et cetera, um, they've got a multi-systemic disorder is the main um, criteria. And then they have one of the following three uh, abnormal chemical mediators, one of the seven, as I talked about, and not necessarily tryptase. And we can talk about that um, because it's so important that it's falsely thought to be uh, a big winner to diagnose MCAS. It's not. Um, and so then you uh, have the minor criteria of an abnormal mediator, a clinical response to mast cell directed therapy, or a positive biopsy stained for mast cells. So that's how you try to diagnose somebody. Okay. But like many syndromes, like irritable bowel syndrome, you get a history, you know, it's abdominal pain, change of bowel habits, some improvement with the bowel movement. It's a wastebasket diagnosis. Any number of diseases and disorders can fill that. And for any syndrome, however, like with MCAS, if you can treat, you know, four mast cell um, chemical mediators like histamine with antihistamines, or you can stabilize the mast cells with chromalin or quercetin, then uh, and then they have a great clinical response. The symptoms plus the treatment improvement results in a diagnosis. And so then you can take off from there. Either A, you can label somebody who's had a disease symptomatology for years that has, you know, driven them crazy, them upset, them depressed. Um, although I'm writing an article with a neurologist out of Buffalo of uh, patients with severe depression, panic attacks, OCD, and other illnesses who were not recognized to have MCAS had failed all psychiatric, psychiatric medical therapy. And when we diagnosed them with um, MCAS, they got better. Their brain got better. Their wow. psyche got better. So it's so that's going to be um, 
11 patients, two were hers and uh, nine were mine. And I'm working on that this week of vacation because I can get something done. <laughs> um, you know, uh, while you were talking about uh, some of the medications, um, it reminded me uh, the first time that I uh, came across MCAS was a patient who in depth wanted to know about what some of the fillers or excipients were in the medications that the prescriber prescribed. And there are three key, uh, th there are three main ones that I can think of that the uh, that we use or we dispense. Is one is low dose naltrexone, um, ketodafin, and chromalin. And I remember going through her extensive allergies to make sure that the filler was appropriate uh, for her. Now, is that something very important for you in your practice uh, to kind of make sure? that fillers don't cause uh, any, be the trigger for MCAS? Absolutely. Um, well, number one, you mentioned LDN. I try LDN on every single patient with MCAS or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and most with POX because it works in many. It's a, it basically uh, the naltrexone itself um, reduces inflammation and pain by working okay. on pole receptors. And then probably your audience knows that it boosts uh, endorphin levels, which reduce T cell and B cell and mast cell activation. So it can help. And in the LDN book, um, number two, uh, which you can find on uh, Amazon by, uh, by uh, Linda Ellsgood, um, you can find that people, you know, have response of 60%. So I looked at my first 116 patients and 60% got better. 20% um, had no effect and 20% had side effects. And sometimes it's the side effects of the fillers. But And for instance, um, some of my patients have uh, allergies to pine trees and they are allergic to methyl cellulose. So that's one thing. But not only uh, this, Jay, I will tell patients take over-the-counter antihistamines and they get worse. And so then I give them loratadine and famotidine in rice flour and they do incredibly well. So um, not only the standard um, compounded medications that you mentioned, the three, but um, chromalin rarely as well. But chromalin can be a big win because um, they seem to get worse because somehow the plastic leaches into the water with the chromalin for the standard, you know, CVS or Walgreens prescription. But you, they can tolerate and do great with a compounding um, form. So, um, so not only um, changing readily available drugs into compounded drugs can be a big boom. Um, these patients can be so sick with some things as, as minor as methylcellulose or cellulose. And so what you're doing and what you're offering in compounding pharmacies is really commendable. Thank you. And, and you know what? The listeners really need to look at the packaging and the ingredients because, you know, when something is mass manufactured, you have to consider 
uh, you know, production, production machinery and what, uh, you know, what they, what manufacturing uses is um, what works well on the machines. You know, a penny saved on a filler when you're doing a million tablets, you know, is a million dollars to them as a compounder. You're doing it in very small batches, very specific to that patient. And uh, I tell you, in our pharmacy, you know, we've chosen to actually use uh, not even cellulose, but we, we choose to use a prebiotic fiber that we source from Germany to make our tablets. And uh, every most uh, PCAB accredited compounding pharmacies will have a pretty comprehensive uh, quality assurance program that where we make sure that we're buying from reputable wholesalers that provide us with a certificate of analysis and allergen statement just for patients' uh, confidence and your confidence that the product is not causing when we're trying to help them get better. So, and that's where compounding kind of steps in. Um, moving on, uh, how let about, just, you talk let me just say, let me just say, pardon me. Yeah. What you've just said, A, is beautiful. It tells people what they need to know about compounding pharmacies, but it's been backed up by a scientific article by Dr. Jill Schofeld and Lawrence Afrin, who um, presented cases of excipient-induced injury in MCAS patients who got better by going the route of changing and digging into the uh, preparations and uh, another group of physicians in our study group um, are actually looking at the listing in the drug compendium. And there's two drug compendiums um, and they're saying different things about what the excipients are. So the regular pharmacist is gonna have trouble um, piecing this out. Um, so it really is, it's really interesting. And for those individuals out there, who have um, 16 different allergies to medication. It's not because you're allergic to 16 drugs. That doesn't happen. You're gonna be allergic to one or two fillers or yeah. preservatives that activate your mast cells. And so many times, and I'm sorry to say, physicians, the dummy physicians, but most of physicians are dummies, um, We'll look at a list of 16 allergies and the person will say, she's crazy. Um, nobody has this. And it's sad. Yeah. And it really is sad. But I hear this day in and day out from my patients who come in and are seen for colonoscopy. They've got all these symptoms. Yeah, that's my mast cell patient. Just ignore the fact that they have all those allergies and don't give it and uh, protect them, by the way when they're having a colonoscopy and getting propofol, protect them with pretreatment of Denf uh, ben generic Benadryl, Pepsid, uh, Versed, and for severe uh, problems, some solumedrol steroids as pre-anesthesia or pre-surgical uh, approach to prevent them from having side effects from anesthetics. So, you know, as much as a patient, we have to uh, consider what's in their medication. How about, let's talk about diet and what they're eating. 
what do you recommend like the uh, FODMAP diet or what are your thoughts? What do you usually recommend? So Dr. Moldering's in his uh, uh, amazing article um, about pharmacological treatment uh, and treatment of MCAS said there is a golden rule, more or less, of three-week trial on gluten-free, dairy-free, and histamine-reduced diet. So that's what I have my patients do. Ultimately, some people do well with the paleo diet, although uh, keep in mind, if you get sick um, 12 hours, six to 12 hours after eating a meal, you gotta think about alpha-gal infection. So this is a um, IgE-mediated disease uh, so that anytime you eat mammalian um, uh, food, um, you know, steak, lamb chop, or milk, cheese, off products of a cow, uh, you're going to get terribly ill with GI symptoms. Maybe you'll have um, some problems uh, with respect to uh, itching or hives, uh, but most often it's GI symptoms and can go unrecognized. So think about alpha-gal, can run separately. I know in Virginia, you've got a lot of tick bites going on there. And one of the ticks that's all over the country now, just used to be in the South, is the Lone Star tick, which causes this autoimmune reaction. Okay, wow. Um, all right, so let me, how about we talk about some supplements that uh, could, uh, give me your thoughts on uh, um, good or bad to have on board uh, uh, with MCAS patients, okay? Okay, well, guaranteed right. is vitamin C and D. Now- Say that again? Vitamin C and D, oh, yeah. very, very important. Go ahead. How about quercetin? I love it. It's a flavonoid, it's what I said, it's a stabilizer. That and lulean, um, so uh, pure loot or other things on the market, uh, that supply another flavonoid, um, kind of like a cousin to quercetin, are great to stabilize mast cells. Okay. How about DAO? DAO. It's an enzyme that helps break down foods that you eat that are high in histamine or convert to histamine and then can't break down further. And so you're basically feeding yourself high histamines. It's its own disease, if you will, um, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. I think that maybe people have um, altered gut um, brain, uh, uh, gut uh, permeability issues. So they have uh, increased intestinal permeability, lose some of the DAO and need supplements, uh, supplementation of it. It probably helps about 5% of MCAS patients. Okay, okay. Uh, because you know it's it's kind of misleading on uh, Dr. Google about DAO. When you read it, you think you want to have it on board, but uh, not necessarily. Correct. Um, all right. How about spore-based probi uh, probiotics? Spore-based probiotics are great if you're trying to treat somebody for mold. Um, so uh, if somebody has a uh, mold problem, you're going to treat them with multiple things, but one of them is going to help to restore uh, bacteria in the gut. It's very hard to give somebody a probiotic um, 
and change their whole gut flora. It's almost impossible. But there are um, particular lactobacilli and bifidobacter that reduce histamine output. So you have to just look on Dr. Google for probiotics that help reduce uh, histamine output. Okay. Um, let's see. Magnesium. Magnesium, if you need it. Um, though you think about proton pump inhibitors. So many of my patients come to me with refractory acid reflux. And why? Because the mast cell uh, creates uh, histamine. Histamine drives acid levels, uh, acid production by the uh, cells that produce acid. Um, so some patients have low magnesium. Some patients with MCAS, about 40% have restless leg syndrome. This is part of a study we just published in 2020. And magnesium can help some of those individuals. Okay. But LDN helps a lot too. All right. Um, how about neem capsules? So I'll use neem when there's bacterial overgrowth. I treat okay. anybody... I test people with MCAS 90% of the time to look for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. If they have no bloating, no gas, no altered bowel habits, A, it's rare that they get to me, and B, um, I, I may or may not uh, test them. But anybody with bloating gas, change of bowel habits, I want to do a lactulose breath test to see if they need either real antibiotics or herbal antibiotics. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to go back to a comment that you made about tryptase. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So Jill uh, who's a cartoonist, my propositus, the first patient I ever de dealt with is a cartoonist and she I gave her the idea is that maybe you should have uh, one of the 10 commandments uh, have something to do with tryptase. So she has uh, Moses holding up the Ten Commandments and says underneath, "Thou shalt now, thou shalt not diagnose MCAS by tryptase." Uh -huh. So, in uh, Dr. Afrin's review of 413 patients, he entitled "The Characteristics of MCAS." Um, he found that 15% had elevation of tryptase. Um, in fact, many of those patients have this genetic condition that six to seven percent of the population has that actually doesn't cause any symptoms. Um, it's called HAT, H-A-T, hereditary alpha tryptisemia, only recently <laughs> diagnosed. So there's an extra copy of the, um, uh, the gene that makes tryptase, but the, the, the innocent type of tryptase, it doesn't cause symptoms. So, you know, you could have HAT and MCAS because, you know, you're one of the 6% who has HAT and you're one of the 17% who has MCAS just incidentally. So then you'll have the elevated tryptase. The problem, Jay, is that the allergists think that tryptase has to be circulating in the blood to diagnose MCAS. They're wrong. The fact is, is that tryptase is a very specific chemical mediator when you have a malignancy, mastocytosis, 
or you've got a hereditary disorder like HAT. But if you've got tryptase levels of 20, you're going to want to get a bone marrow biopsy to see if you've got this malignant condition, mastocytosis. But the fact is, you have much less um, uh, mass in the way of mast cells in the gut or in the skin or mouth than mastocytosis patients do. And therefore, you're not going to secrete large mass quantities of tryptase. So unfortunately, the they don't even the the uh, consensus one group don't even uh, circulate or really understand their own criteria. They don't realize that in the criteria that they propose, it's elevated tryptase to a certain degree with certain change during um, uh, tax or other markers for MCAS such as. Uh, and methylhistamine in the urine and so forth. So it's unfortunately, not only do the, um, do the poor MCAS patients who have suffered at the hands of many physicians dismissing them, yeah. but they go to an allergist who theoretically is an expert and says, well, um, my group says, uh, if you don't have high tryptase, you don't have MCAS, but they don't look any further that in fact, in those criteria, there are other chemicals. They also say that an MCAS patient has to have anaphylaxis as a historical feature, but most of our, our patients don't have anaphylaxis. So there's a group that started with, with Dr. Moldering's and Dr. Afrin, and we're a group of 400 physicians that deal with this on a day-to-day basis, and we actually wrote an article in the journal Diagnosis contrasting the two criteria uh, to make a diagnosis. So the saddest thing is that I think that people are making it harder to diagnose so they don't have to take care of these sick people. You know, this is a a great time. If you could talk to us about... um the documentary that you are trying to um, publish. Uh, uh, if you could talk to us a little bit about that and, and your uh, passion behind it to getting it out to the public. Uh, thank you for taking that time and letting me talk for a couple of minutes. We are doing the first MCAS documentary. We're going to add to it the Evil Triad, Potts, and Ehlers-Danlos. And we're going to add to it the common triggers, such as Lyme and mold. And we're going to look at uh, individuals who we have diagnosed and treated and who have survived and thrived just by making the diagnosis of MCAS and POX. And EDS, it's hard to imagine missing it, but it's missed all the time. So we want a positive message. We're going to start filming in December. We're trying to do a fundraising. We're also going to do something that nobody's ever done before. We're going to have a bunch of um, lectures, uh, basically, that are attached to the movie by QR codes or hard links on YouTube that will be lectures by uh, some of the best physicians around who really are delving deep into 
these three syndromes and the triggers. And we hoped so that people with open minds like the naturopaths and the integrative physicians will be able to arm themselves with education. And so uh, in December, we're gonna start on this uh, journey. Uh, we're gonna start filming. Um, so the LDN Research Trust is becoming our fund, our charity fund to collect, because this is a nonprofit thing. Nobody is gonna make money. We want to make a great product to educate the public, to educate the family and, and the patients, and to bring it to the attention of the younger, more open-minded medical providers, such as medical students, naturopaths, nurse practitioners, phys uh, physicians, assistants, et cetera. Um, and uh, so we're looking for um, donations. So it's basically mcasfund.com, M-C-A-S-F-U-N-D.com. If you got 20 bucks, it'll help put this forward in gear. It costs a lot to do a, a, a documentary, um, but what we're, we're doing is not just a little film. This is gonna be something that we feel will contribute to the health and well-being of so many patients afflicted by these syndromes. Well, Dr. Weinstock, uh, thank you for sharing that. I'll make sure to put the uh, website address on the mcatsfund.com in our show notes. Uh, I want to uh, truly thank you for joining us today. You shared a lot of great information. Um, also, regarding the questionnaire, I'll put your website and the information notes for those that wanted to go and kind of uh, download the questionnaire. And Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the Compounding Center Connections podcast. We hope you found the information presented to you today to be helpful. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to me at j at compoundingcenter.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast channel, the Compounding Center Connections, and stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you, Dr. Weinstock. Thank you, Jay.